Question, uh, have you ever had something uh, that someone else was unwilling to accept? Have you ever had something that someone was unwilling to accept? Um, show of hands, any of you guys been to Max Drive-In in McCook, Nebraska before? How many of you guys been to Max Drive-In? Okay, a couple handful. Actually, there was more in the 8 a.m. I was super impressed. I was amazed, proud of the 8 a.m. I don't know how I feel about you guys, but Max is the best place. I mean, I love it. It's like this little family-owned restaurant, burgers, onion rings, fries, that kind of thing. And it's literally so good. When I would go to Max and visit, like for the weekend, I would eat there every meal, like, like several meals. Like, and like they, nobody understood. I'm like, I just have to have Max, right? It's like, a, but for the longest time, uh, Max didn't accept credit cards. And so I'd come back, you know, and five years after I graduated high school and I'm like, hey, you know, 10 years after, hey, do you got, no, uh, just cash. I'm like, who has cash anymore? Or a, che- or a check, like, like we check, take check. I'm like, you think I don't have cash, but I have check. Like it's just not, it, and so it's so funny. I'm like, how do you not accept credit cards? But recently one of the sons took over the business they accept credit cards now. It's pretty amazing. But for years and years and years, I tried to offer credit card. They wouldn't accept it. Uh, I was in uh, a gas station in Iowa recently, swiped my card. They're like, yeah, that's, uh, that's not going to work. Is that MasterCard? I'm like, I don't know if it's MasterCard or not. It's just a card. They're like, yeah, we only take Visa. I'm like, I don't even know the difference. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's what we do. I was in, we were in the Middle East. The classic question we were overseas is, do you, would you take US dollars? Like you're always asking, you know, and uh, I was in Walmart. A week ago, this happens often to me. I went to pay with Apple Pay. I don't know if any of you guys ever use Apple Pay. Super amazing. Don't need a card. Just scan it up. Everywhere has Apple Pay. You'd think of all places Walmart would. Oh, sorry, we don't have Apple Pay. What do you have? Walmart Pay. What's well, Walmart Pay? It's like Apple Pay, but it's through Walmart. Okay, how do I do it? You download the app. I don't have time to download the app. Well, that's new. And I'm like, oh my gosh, but I didn't have a card on me or cash. So it's a whole deal, right? But if you had that moment where you're like, I have something, but the other person isn't willing to accept it. It's just like, this doesn't work. Well, um, in all those scenarios, I had something and I was asking the person if they would accept it, if they'll take it, if it's, if it's usable to them. And because it's their store, they get to say, yeah, I'll take a card or no, I only accept cash. And in James 2, verse 20, 14 through 26, what we're studying this morning, James addresses diff- people that have these different types of faith. And he says to all of them, God only accepts one type of faith and he will not accept these other types of faith that you guys have. And, and, and so he says no to all of them, except one. And I just I want to say, I can't, I can't stress how important of a conversation in a, in a passage this is for us in the room. It, it, it's major. And so can you imagine at the end of your life coming before God with a credit card and he's like, I only take cash. Like, can you imagine getting to uh, stand before God at the end of your life with your long resume that you've worked so hard for and all the things you've done and all the places you've gone and all the money you've given. And God goes, I, I actually, I only accept Jesus's resume. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine getting to the end of your life and, uh, and standing before God with your Christian tattoo of the cross and your Christian t-shirt and your theological concepts and all the books you read and God goes, I actually only accept true faith in Jesus alone that transforms. That's how serious this conversation is. And if you look at the end of verse 14, the key phrase in this passage, James asked the question, can that faith save him? Can that faith save him? He's talking about a certain type of faith. So can faith save? 1,000%. Faith alone is how we're saved. But it's got to be a certain type of faith. It's not just anyone. And we would do good to know what kind of faith saves and what kind of faith leaves you in your condemned nature with your sin. So for some of you this morning, honestly, 
you'll walk away realizing you have the wrong eternal currency. God won't accept that faith. And there's a come to Jesus moment where you're like, you were like, do I have dead or demonic faith? And, and I'm just begging you, uh, the, I'm begging the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you, to expose that and to lead you to Jesus um, through his word today. And for those of uh, other in the room that do have real faith, have trust in Jesus, walking with him, I'm praying that these words would be just a boost of confidence, like an exciting word to go, you've got the same faith as Abraham and Rahab. Can you believe that? You have a real faith that God accepts and enjoys and is pleased and is granting forgiveness to you and you'd fan that into fame. So, Flame. So I want to uh, address. I just want to address one more thing before we start. Uh, this passage is weird and confusing in a lot of different ways. And in one, we just got done studying ten weeks in the in the in Romans chapter eight. And Romans chapter eight is a fire hydrant of the gospel, grace alone, like no condemnation, all this stuff. And then James comes in, and I just want to read these two verses from Romans and then from James. James two twenty four in our passage says, "A person is justified by works and not by faith alone." That verse out of context is absolutely scary, frightening, ter- ter- terrifying. Um, then you get Romans 3, 28. One is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how do those two things fit together? Why are both of those verses in the Bible? Um, let me explain. Paul, the writer of Romans and much of the New Testament, and James, Jesus' brother, author of this book, these verses, are looking at two different enemies to true faith in the gospel, to true faith in Jesus. James is concerned primarily with workless faith. See, in his mind, in his experience, in his church planting, pastoral leadership, he has seen people who belong to the church who come every single Sunday, they got their seat, they, maybe they raise their hand to a song or two, they don't go full up, but they go like kind of right here, you know, this spot. And uh, I mean, they're, they're excited, they, they, they're, they're pumped, but they don't tell, they have no passion to tell anybody about Jesus. Um, he's seen them know all the right answers, explain theological truths, but remain dead inside, unchanged and uninterested in full surrender to Jesus. And he's warning against workless faith. You say all the right things, you show up to all the right things, but you're still dead inside. There's no work that would be present in your life. And as Paul is uh, worried primarily and concerned about faithless work. So in his mind, experience in church planning, pastoral leadership, he's seen people work really hard for God. He's seen people care for the homeless people and he's seen people advocate and he's seen people work and they're on every serving team and they give generously and they fast every week and their knees are cows because they pray so much. And yet none of that is actually motivated because they love Jesus. They're, they're not working as a joyful response to Jesus's work for them. They're working to hopefully twist God's arm into letting them into heaven because they're impressive and they've worked hard enough and built that great resume. That's faithless work. So check this out. Neither of those save. So God is using both Paul and James to address different enemies to the gospel, to expose them and lead us back to the true gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so Paul and James aren't standing face to face arguing like, oh, it works and all faith alone. They're standing back to back fighting two different enemies of the gospel and they come together. And so here's kind of what I, I hope you see. And I think what James is wanting us to see in James 2 is that we are saved by faith alone, but faith alone doesn't stay alone. Well, you see through these verses that we're saved by faith alone, but faith alone doesn't stay alone. So 
simple outline for the morning. We're going to look at two types of faith that don't save, and then we're going to look at two examples of faith that does save. So uh, you can open up. We'll look at uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Uh, 15 through 17 in James 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. First type of faith that uh, James says doesn't save is dead faith. Dead faith. Uh, so here's a, a line to consider what dead faith is or how to kind of uh, assess it in your life. If your faith isn't good for others, it isn't good to God. If your faith isn't good to, for others, it isn't good to God. So I want to point out three things with ver- uh, about 15, verses 15 and 16 uh, on his first example of, of dead faith. Number one, the person in need is referred to as a brother or sister. So if you look at verse 15, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed. So that means that this is a fellow Christian. This is another blood-bought believer, uh, brother or sister in Christ. Jesus calls us to love everyone, right? If you get the, the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're called to not just love people who uh, live by us or look like us or agree with us. We're called to love all different types of people. And yet, there's a theme in the New Testament of God's particular, of our particular responsibility to love and take care of fellow Christians, to feel as a member like of City Light, to know I'm taking care of other co-members in here. And like, there's a particular attention to that. In John 13, Jesus says, people will know you're my disciples. How? By how you love, not the whole world, but how you love each other the interactions you have with each other. The world will go, whoa, these Christians really love each other. In Acts 2, when they're selling all their possessions and having everything in common, there's this threat saying they're doing that so that other Christians in this church crazy movement don't have any needs. It's beautiful. So the person in need is a brother or sister. It's important to know. Number two, the person in need isn't just poor, they're almost dead. See, when he says in verse 15 that they are poorly clothed, that doesn't mean that they got their clothes from goodwill. I'm sorry, that doesn't mean that they got their clothes from Goodwill and not Lululemon or Target, right? Like poorly clothed in this culture 2,000 years ago probably means they were wearing rags. Their clothes had been so worn that they're probably exposed and potentially naked. So that's what it means to be poorly clothed. And then when he says lacking daily food, you got to remember they didn't have food banks back in 2,000 years ago. Like if you, like, you know, I've interacted with homeless people a decent amount in the last decade or so of walking with Jesus, and I've never met a single homeless person that hasn't had access to food. Um, By God's grace, in Lincoln, there's great programs at all these other places, um, in America particularly. Um, In their culture, in their time 2,000 years ago, if they didn't have those, and so you're literally a meal away from dying. You're facing death by starvation. That's the image he's getting to in this. So that's first thing. Second thing. The third thing is the blessing he gives is more like a curse. Look at verse 16. He says, um, verse 16 says, go in peace, be warm and filled. So it's a common blessing that Jews would say to each to one another. And so this person is a brother or sister in the faith. They believed in Jesus, saved by him. You'll spend eternity with him. That person is barely clothed, probably naked, and a meal away from death, a meal, a missed meal away from death. And you think the best thing to do is to spout off some little uh, cliche phrase blessing to them? It would be like, like that picture is like you're driving down, uh, you know, the interstate and you see someone on the side of the road and their car is on f- in flames. They're, they're, they're literally, it's about to explode. And you see them in their car and they're trying to unbuckle their seatbelt and you drive by, slow down and throw a whole pan of leftover lasagna at them. 
that it's like, does that make any sense at all? You know, like at least a bottle of water or some tea or a Mountain Dew or or a Baja Blast from Taco Bell to put the fire, I don't know, but a lasagna, like that's how mind blowing and nonsensical this thing is. It's just bizarre. And James asked at the end of verse 16, he says, what good is that? If you say these things, but you don't actually give them anything, what good is that? It doesn't produce anything. Ultimately, if it isn't good, it, it didn't help. And so I'm going to step on some toes here. We're going to mutually be convicted. The phrase, go in peace, be warm and filled, that's their common blessing that they would say to one another. That's what he got in trouble for, just saying that, not doing anything. What's our common day version of go in peace, be warm and be filled? I'll point out two ones. Number one, I'll pray for you. Number one, I'll pray for you. When I'm talking to somebody, they'll ask for prayer or they'll share something pretty serious that would necessitate prayer. And I'm like, I, I like deep conversations, but I also am like a golden retriever. Where I just want to talk to everybody. And so I'm just like, oh, this is going to take a little while. What do I do? You know, do I stay in it? Do I go? I want to say hi to her or him or whatever, hug the, this whole thing. And so I have an option. Someone shares. It's a need. It's a struggle, whatever. And I have an option. Uh, Number one, I can stop, I can be present like Jesus was, and I can pray for them. Put my hands on them. Hey, thank you for sharing, love you, with you, the whole thing, right? Um, Or what I often do is I'll pray for you. Okay, cool, thank you. And nobody's mad at that. Nobody's ever been like, I'm really mad that you told me that you prayed for me. But honestly, half of the time I forget. Isn't that easy to do? To just be like, ah, I'm gonna rush, I'll pray for you or whatever. And then it's like so hard to actually pray. And I'll take notes on my phone, but who knows if I get there, this whole thing. And uh, and I just wanna say like, make something clear, like praying for someone is real work. Like it's real help. Um, When uh, Skylar mentioned his daughter, Ruth, when she was in brain surgery, there, there wasn't a second that that little girl wasn't prayed for by people in our church. Like our church stepped up, people own 15 minute uh, intervals and prayed for her. I'm just going like, that's, God sustained her in like this beautiful way through the prayers of the saints. And it's just like this beautiful picture. And so I just, just, you know, it'd be so beautiful. Like if, if, um, if on a Sunday morning, like we stopped saying, I'll pray for you and started saying like, can I pray for you right now? Like if somebody new walked in, went, well, I don't even know what City Light's about. I'm nervous about this whole church. And like in between gatherings, they just see groups of people spread around our church, laying hands on each other and actually praying. They go, I've never seen anything like that. Like that's, like that's this thing of not just going, oh yeah, 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 go in peace, be warm and filled, I'll pray for you. But like actually going, no, I actually wanna advocate for you right now and receive for you through prayer. And I'm going, this isn't gonna be a pretty prayer. I don't even know what to say right now. I might not say the right thing, but I want you to know my heart's pure and I just wanna pray over you, you know? And it's, it'd be amazing. The, that's the first thing, I'll pray for you. The second way, our modern day version of go in peace, be warm and filled is I know God will provide. I know God will provide. Maybe I'm just lazy, but when someone is explaining a struggle or they're in need, I find myself saying, I know God will provide rather than actually being the person who helps provide. You get what I'm saying there? And so a family in our church, true story, texted us a few months ago, they, or maybe a year ago, they were struggling financially. And, uh, and, and they, says, hey, they didn't say, hey, can you help? They were just like, can you pray? And so I was texting back, like, you know, you know, Matthew 6, God takes care of the lilies. He's going to take care of you, you know, this whole thing. And then someone else in that group that they had texted calls me and goes, we need to bring some people together and we're going to get them food. They're not, they're, they're not going to worry about food this month. And we're going to help with utilities and, and, and mortgage. And it was like, you know, I'm like, delete the text, delete the text. Like, you know, like, yes, yes, yes. Here's what I ever have. You know, it's like, whoa. But I'm just going, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, like what they needed most wasn't a reminder that God will provide. They needed an example that he does. 
And I just think it's so easy for us to spout off theological truths and not have any actually implication to our lives that maybe you're the one who's supposed to live out that theological truth you're saying. You get what I'm saying? So like, um, so the idea is that right now in, in tragedy, especially, uh, or in a moment of need, they don't need a verse, they need a volunteer. And I'm not saying like, I'm a Bible guy. Like I commit my life to loving this, knowing this and teaching this. So they need, people need a verse like that. But I think we're way more prone to give a verse than we are uh, to be a volunteer for them, right? And so it's like, give them a verse, have it in your back pocket, but tell it to them in person when you're, you know, scooping their driveway or, you know, dropping off groceries or babysitting or whatever it is. So um, this is what James calls uh, dead faith. And he says, it just can't save. Like verse 17 uh, again, just to reiterate that he goes, if also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works accompanying it, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. If it's, if it's not, if your faith isn't good for others, it's not good to God. If it's workless, it's worthless. It's just cheap words. And the great reformer, Martin Luther, once said that, he said, God doesn't need your good works. Just to be clear, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so I just want to be clear, God doesn't need your prayers. He's not insecure that you haven't talked to him in a while or what, he's not waiting on you. God doesn't need your prayers, but your friend and city groups probably do. God doesn't need you to babysit, but a family in our church might need you to. God doesn't need your financial assistance, but a single mom might. We don't help because God's hand is short and he's stingy. We help because he designed the church to be an extension of his hand and his generosity. You get what I'm saying? And and in a church our size, I just need to be clear, it's really hard to know what you need when you're in need and how to wrap people around you if you're not in a city group. Like, it just, there's, if you're not in a city group, you're only experiencing like 20% of what our church can offer. And I hope Sunday mornings are great, but there's better Sunday morning gatherings around the city of Lincoln. Like what's unique about our church is the family and that God's provided. And I think that's the intention, not just to come and consume, learn, take notes and go, but to be part of a real family and use gifts and be, help, be benefited by other people's gifts and love. And so we've got a real spiritual family in city group. that isn't polished community of a country club kind of thing. It's a real uh, family that wants to carry your burdens with you. And I've seen this play out over and over and over and over and over again. Kurt and Angie Green were a couple in our church and uh, Angie got uh, the terrible news that she had terminal brain cancer. She was, she has, she had five kids and she also found out when she had brain cancer that she's pregnant. And so the, to make the bad news even worse, if she had chemo for her brain cancer, the baby would die. If she didn't have chemo for her brain tumor cancer, then she would die before the baby was born just a lose-lose. So what do you do? And, um, and they we prayed, sought, they found some like trial alternative option to chemo where it would suppress the growth, but it would sustain the baby. And little Elsie Green is like this, she was born, she's a beautiful little girl. And it's this amazing picture of her mom fighting for her and going, no, God wants you to, to be here. And he created you. And it's just a bizarre story of a mom's passion for her daughter. And I remember, I'll never forget calling Kurt and going, hey man, her husband and going, how can I help? I, I feel like I, I'm your pastor. How can I be with you guys, walk with you guys? Do you need me to organize a prayer night for the whole church? Do you need, uh, do you need help with meals or finances or anything? And he goes, I promise you, he goes, our city group has it handled. Really? What do you mean? Yeah, man, when we're you know, gone for uh, trips down to Texas and Arizona for different treatments, uh, city group shows up, hangs out with their kids, watches their kids. They're, they're going to their, my son's football games. 
They're, they're buying groceries. They're filling up the fridge. They're organizing meal trains. I'm like, what? I mean, I, honestly, one of the most pure expressions, I think, of what Jesus intended his church to be. And I'm going, I think that's what it looks like. And so City Light, I just want to pause and affirm you and say, well done. Like way to be a community of people who, who actually love people and don't have a dead faith. Um, way to like actually have works accompany your faith and not just give these common blessings, but actually be there in the heart, hard thick of it. And to others in the room, just to self-assess, is your faith good for others? It, if it's not, it's not good to God. Like, so repent, turn, ask him for a new heart that wants to help and serve and love because Jesus has helped and served and loved you, right? And ask Jesus to make your dead faith alive. He loves to do that. That's his MO. So that's the first type of faith that doesn't save, dead faith. Uh, the second type of faith that doesn't save is in verse 19. Verse 19, look down with me. James says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. So this is kind of his, his like, like he gets like snappy here. Oh, awesome. Okay, you believe that God's one? Great, even the demons do. They believe and they shudder. So the second type of faith that doesn't save is demonic faith. Here's kind of a, uh, a phrase to picture what this means. If your faith is the same as demons, your fate is the same as demons. So I thought about, man, that's kind of a hard thing to call demonic faith, but I think it's accurate, not only because the demons have this type of faith, but because I think Satan and his dark ar like army of demons created this type. I think they love this type of faith that so many people are convinced will save them and it doesn't. And so it's a scary thought to consider, but whatever you call faith, uh, does it line up with what demons know? Like I've always been shocked by Luke chapter eight. If you, you go and read it by yourself, what happens in Luke eight is there's this man that's demon possessed and everyone's afraid of him and everyone's given up on him. And then Jesus comes on the scene and everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be a showdown. Pop the popcorn, get your seat, UFC 33 AD. Like it's gonna be crazy. What's gonna happen when these two fight it out? And look what happens in verse 28, Luke eight twenty-eight. When he, this demon-possessed man, saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. What? I mean, notice the, demon, the demons fell down at Jesus' feet. Notice they call Jesus the son of the most high God. They affirm his identity. And notice they admit that Jesus has power that's greater than theirs, and they beg him to not torment them. This is what James is saying that some people have. This is say, he's saying the sa some people have this same exact faith that would line up, demonic faith. And you believe in Jesus like demons believe, yet demonic faith doesn't save. So there's two markers to this demonic faith. Number one is mental ascension, mental ascension, intellectual agreement. So look again at verse 19, what's he say? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that God is one. So demons know that Jesus is God. They probably understand that better than we do. In fact, they probably have better theology than we do, right? They've been understanding God for thousands of years. Satan's problem wasn't knowing God was real. It was submitting to the fact that God is superior and supreme and preexistent and all that and submitting to him in that. It's almost like people, we think like, if you're not an atheist, you're a believer. And it's like, no, demons aren't atheists. Demons know God's real. Demons acknowledge that. 
They've intellectually agreed that Jesus is God. They call him the son of the most high God. And so listen, you can know all the right answers. You can know everything there is to know about Jesus. You can read through the whole Bible. You can read Wayne Grudem's systematic theology that's 1,600 pages long and yet not be saved. Why? Because salvation doesn't come from knowing. It comes from believing. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, when he, Paul says, this is how you're saved, he says, if you believe in your heart, it's a different verb, it's a different idea than just knowing something in your head. And so I've always been intrigued by evil Knievel. Like, again, some of us aren't necessary. I don't even know when he was in his prime, but I am 30, so I don't know if it was back then or what, but I've always known about evil Knievel. I think he's amazing. And, and now, and there's modern day evil Knievel, like stuntman and all that stuff and crazy jumps. But what's wild about him and his story and what he did is that, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of people who worked to make what he does possible. The extreme physics of what he did and the science that was down to the last detail. I mean, they would go, how much do you weigh? Okay, how much does your bike weigh? Okay, how much weight are we putting in the bike through gas? Okay, how far do you need to travel? Okay, what's the, what's the, the, the degree that you're jumping in? Okay, what's the degree you're landing in? What kind of tires do we need? What speed do you have to get to? All that stuff, it was perfectly calculated. And everyone on that team collectively agreed and knew that this stunt would work if he weighs this and it's this fast and this this distance. But there was only one person who believed it, evil Knievel. Why? Because he took all those stats and everything they knew and he got on a motorcycle and he revved it up and he pulled the throttle and he jumped and he risked his life for it. And that's the picture of what faith is, of what believing is. Demons go, yep, the jump will make, yep, the jump, you gotta go this far. <laughs> Real faith goes, I'm actually getting on the bike and I'm leveraging my life for it. I'm banking everything on this being true. That's real faith, leaning into what you know to be true. And so friend, do you believe that you're loved by God? Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Well, then stop trying to add to your resume. It's not impressive. Do you really believe that you'll enjoy eternity with God forever? Well, then stop trying to squeeze everything out of this life. There's a better life to come. Do you really believe that Jesus paid for all your sins? Then don't sit under the burden of hiding. Enjoy confessing to other people and knowing that it's forgiven. Do you really believe that Jesus wants to save more sinners? Well, then let's go tell people about him. Amen. Like this is what it looks like to not just mentally agree and go, yeah, I think this is true, but to bank your life on it, to get on the bike and go and jump and risk it all to say, I think this is true. I believe it. That's the first aspect marker of demonic faith is mental ascension. The second one is an emotional reaction, an emotional reaction. So verse 19, he doesn't just say that they believe. He says, even the de demons believe and they shudder. They're, they have an emotional response to what they know to be true about God. And this one's just hard for me to talk about, to be honest. This is one of the most heartbreaking aspects of uh, being a pastor, walking with people, is I've seen men and women enjoy Christian community, have an encounter with God, share their stories on this stage, get baptized, be in a city group, and then fade away, and we've never heard of, we never hear from them again. And I ju it just messes with me. And like they had this mountaintop moment, this crescendo season, they were just done. I'm going, how do you make sense of that? Well, my best understanding is that it was probably just a purely emotional experience. They were excited. 
but it wasn't spiritual. God was interesting, but eventually that feeling fades. And if the reason you're interested in God was your feelings and your emotion, well, then when those things inevitably change and hard things come, you're going to go look for something else that will spark your affection. And then you go and you move on. But an emotional reaction isn't faith that saves. Excitement for God isn't submission to God. And so those are the markers of demonic faith. In Matthew chapter seven, it's one of the scariest chapters in the Bible you could ever read. Jesus talks about these people that'll come to him and go, oh, you know, Lord, Lord. He goes, I never knew you. But in verses 13 and 14, uh, Jesus says, there's a path to destruction. There's a path to hell. And it's as wide as you could imagine. You can, anybody can hit it. And he goes, but this path to eternal life is really narrow. It's narrow. And I've just thought about this for years. Like, what's Jesus mean by saying that? He can't mean that this, this path is really narrow and that not many people are going to make it through because like heaven's not some like underattended church service. You know, like that's not the picture that heaven creates. Heaven's a packed party. The word that's used for the crowd in heaven is myriads, which is like this explosive, numerical, uncountable number. It's like, I don't, it's just infinite. It's just so many. And it's all tribes and tongues and nations. I mean, heaven's gonna be a packed party. So the, the path to eternal life being narrow can't mean that we're like single file, like slowly, like, oh yeah, you made it or you, and this thing. No, 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 it's, it's gonna be packed. So what's it mean? Heaven is narrow means that the path to eternal life is narrow because there's only one way. There's only one way to get to eternal life and trust it and getting to the Father. And it's by faith in Jesus, a faith that's good for others, a faith that isn't just mere intellectual uh, agreement and ascension, but a faith that banks everything on that, that really believes, and a faith that isn't just emotional or excitable, but that's real and that's deep. That's the faith that saves. That's the narrow path. So we know that, we know what faith doesn't save. Dead faith, demonic faith, right? If it's not good for others, it's not good to God. If you have the same faith as demons, you have the same fate as demons. So what faith does save then? What, what's, what's that narrow path? Jesus, or James gives us two examples of these and they, the two people, for examples, couldn't be any different, right? So first is our boy, Abraham. Abe, father Abraham, okay, verses 21 through 23. Was not, uh, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works and scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not faith by faith alone. Okay, so if you're unfamiliar with Abraham, his entire story is marked by faith either victories in it or failures around it. But in Genesis 12, God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to leave what you're comfortable with, what you know, your country, and I want you to go, and, um, and I'll show you while you're on your way where I'm taking you. Okay, so no GPS and destination. Nope, just start going. Okay, sounds good. And then God comes and says, hey, I'm going to bless every family in the world through your family. Wow, that's, that's great. Sounds good. Sign me up. All right, cool. But then Abraham and his wife, Sarah, they get to old age and realize they're infertile. They can't have kids. They haven't had any. And Abraham's going, hey, God, just real quick. Uh, don't know if you remember back in the day, but uh, you told me that I was going to be the father of many nations. I don't know how I'm supposed to be the father of many nations, but I literally am not a physical father to anybody. And God provides a miracle son, Isaac. And Abraham's like, yes, Isaac, my boy. Uh, you know, he teaches him how to reverse sear a steak, how to change oil, how to use a drill, you know, how to do the whole, throw a pig skin. They're having a great time. And in the middle of their, you know, Sunday night football, God's like, hey, I want you actually to sacrifice him. 
what? Yeah, I want you to kill him. Okay, that uh, doesn't seem right. Let's come back next week. Let's see if your mind has changed. No, 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 I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, which by the way, was the predicating reality, it seemed to fulfill what God had originally promised him to be the father of many nations. So not only does he just love his son, and he's just excited for, he's a miracle, but also this is the son that is helping us be a father of many nations. How could we ever? But Abraham trusts God and he goes to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And as he's going to sacrifice him, God stops him and provides a different sacrifice and said, it's a beautiful story. That's what James 2.21 is referring to. So look at James 2.21 again. He says, was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, on the altar? So, I want you to lean in for a second. This is significant to understand and untangle. Uh, There's two different ways to use the word justification, okay? And uh, first and primarily in the Bible, justification means being immediately innocent because of your faith in Jesus, okay? So Bob Walls always says justification just as if it never happened. Like your, your slate is wiped clean. You are declared innocent. The gavel is hit. You are justified, right? That's what it primarily means. Justification happens in that moment when we trust in Jesus. Romans 5.1, we're justified by faith, right? Counted righteous. The other way to use justification is how James says it in verse 21, but he uses another synonymous phrase with justification to help us understand in verse 22. So now look at verse 22. He says, you see that faith was active along with works and faith was completed by his works. That word completed is the synonymous word he's helping to understand what justification meant in the verse before. So track with me. Justification is like when you receive your diploma at graduation. The justification James is referring to is like receiving the diploma at graduation. That diploma doesn't mean you're graduated. You, you, have, you have completed all the classes. You've done everything for it. Your teachers have said you're good to go. But when you walk across the stage and you receive that diploma, it's this like public display of it. It's this like, hey, yeah, this has happened. Um, and it's like wearing a wedding ring doesn't make you marry, but it shows that you are. This is the kind of justification and completion that he is talking about. So listen, it would be anti-gospel and anti-everything I've preached for the last six years if what James means by this was that Abraham was justified, he justified himself when he went to sacrifice Isaac. That would be anti-gospel. That would be anti-everything we've ever taught. Go somewhere else. That would be what Galatians 2 refers to as nullifying the grace of God. If Abraham justified himself in Genesis 22 when he went to sacrifice his son, that would be anti-gospel. And in fact, James fights against that and says, just so you know, that's not what I'm saying. And look at verse 23. He explains this. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So listen to me. Verse 21, 22, he was justified by his works. His works completed his faith. Then he goes, verse 23. These two are from Genesis 22 that when he went to sacrifice Isaac. Verse 23 is referring back to Genesis 15. And he says, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, which means that's the moment of justification. God justified him 
way before he did any of that impressive stuff. And then Genesis 22 was him showing that God had already justified him. It was his completion, his graduate, it was showing, yeah, this had happened, but it was, Genesis 22 was evidence that Genesis 15 happened. You get what I'm saying? Verse 23, or verse 21 and 22 were evidence that verse 23 happened in James 1. You get what I'm saying? So it's the whole big idea. James says, Faith alone saves, but faith alone doesn't stay alone. There's fruit that's inevitably produced in the life of a Christian. There's evidence that comes forth in our lives. An apple tree produces apples. And there's never been an apple tree in history that's gone like, oh, why am I not producing apples? All these oranges are showing up. What's happening? You know, I just need to work really hard. Maybe they'll show up. No, it just produces apples. And, and if you plant an avocado seed, it takes 13 years for the first seed to sprout or the first avocado to be produced in the tree. So God's not promising that the fruit born in your life is gonna be a big or impressive or immediate or great, but there will be fruit, right? It'll sprout, it'll show. That's what Abraham's faith did. God justified him in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 22, we get to see that justification in action. Faith alone doesn't stay alone. That's the first example. The next one is Rahab's story. The last example of faith is Rahab's story. Verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on another way. So when God's people are freed from slavery in Egypt, it's a miracle, right? They're, sleeve from, they're, they're freed from slavery. Uh, God takes them out. They cross the Red Sea. It's beautiful. It's amazing. God wasn't just interested in not letting them be slaves. He wanted to take them into a promised land, right? And it was called Jericho. And they're really nervous and like, oh, no, we can't go. We got to check it out. So they send these spies in. The spies go into Jericho. It's all fortified. And they run into a prostitute named Rahab. And Rahab has two options. Number one, do what most people would do and turn these guys in. Then they die and they're done. They don't come back. And the Jews know, okay, we're not going to go in there, you know? Uh, or option number two, what she does is she hides them. She believes God and she, she confesses, she professes faith in their God while she meets him. It's this bizarre story. And, and James is going, that's a picture of faith. So track with me for a second. We just talked about Father Abraham and his example of faith. Like he's the patriarch of patriarchs, okay? Dude's got over 10 chapters in the Bible written about him. He's a purebred Israelite. And James chooses him as the first example. And if you grew up in church, you know, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. Have you ever heard or sang a song about Rahab? Oh, Rahab, she had a rough old life before Jesus. You know, it's like, no, we like never sang that, you know? It's like, and yet James has a whole plethora of people he can talk about in faith and he chooses Rahab, a, a foreign woman from a different country who is currently employed by the sin of men's lust. She doesn't lead a nation to victory. She doesn't do anything overtly oppressive or wow, or she, she doesn't do anything crazy great. What's her big act of faith that James is talking about? Hiding spies in lying to leaders. I mean, James wants us to know that real faith isn't something for the far off spiritual elite. It's attainable. It's for normal people. It's for messy people like me and you. But I want to point out, you got to catch this. Abraham's example of faith was vertical. Like he trusted God, right? He trusts God. He goes, okay. But Rahab's example of faith was vertical. She loved and blessed others. And James is putting these two together and going, this is the picture of full faith in Jesus. 
a vertical love towards God and a horizontal love towards others. In Matthew 22, when Jesus uh, uh, sums up the whole law, the entire Bible, he goes, you wanna know what it looks like to follow God? Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and go and love others. Love God and love people. Like that's all of it boils down to that reality. You wanna honor him, you want works of faith, all that is, is an affection upward towards God and affection around you towards other people. And so I want you to think about this city light. Every person that has ended up in hell has gotten there with some type of faith. Every single person in hell has gotten there with some type of faith. When we say, oh, they don't have faith or I don't have faith, that's a lie. You, you do have faith. It just isn't in Jesus. People that have ended up in hell have had faith in themselves, thinking they're good enough. People that have ended up in hell have had faith in Muhammad or Buddha or atheism, that heaven and hell aren't real or whatever. People have ended up in hell with workless faith or faithless work. People have ended up in hell with way more verses memorized than us. So the question that it all comes down to isn't do you have faith? The question is, who do you have faith in? And what kind of faith do you have? And more importantly, Will God accept that faith? So when I was in Walmart a week ago, trying to get the stuff and the whole Walmart pay, Apple pay fiasco, I didn't keep putting my phone up against the, the paying option, little card reader. Oh, maybe it'll change this time. Maybe it'll go through. I, I accepted the reality that this will never work. They will never accept Apple pay. And I went out to my truck and I rummaged through it and I found an old debit card and I went back and I was like, here, here's the $6.56 you needed that took 10 minutes, you know? Okay, great. And I think this is what I'm just begging the spirit to do. That some of you would go, man, I'm trying, I'm trying to do this. This faith isn't it. God's not willing to accept it. And you would just go, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try again. I wanna go and I wanna get real faith in Jesus. This isn't just, you know, uh, purely emotional or intellectual or, or, or theological, but it's real and it's deep and there's action, there's blessing other people. And the way that my metaphor falls short about me being in the store is I don't think real faith in Jesus is far off there. Or you need to go anywhere for it. it. Like the better metaphor picture would be that as I'm going, oh, I don't know if this works. There's another person that comes up and goes, here, you swipe my card, I'll pay for that. Jesus is going, here's real faith in me. Here's what it looks like to walk with me and live with me and worship me. And he's offering that. And so I'm just begging, would some of you just go, man, I, I'm, I'm done with the old way that I've tried. I want, I want to walk with Jesus. Really. I want to have real faith in him. And let me say this to the believers in the room. The reason that faith alone doesn't stay alone is because God won't let it. Like that's the good news of the gospel. Uh, John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He, he's the one that's not gonna let your faith stay alone. Philippians 1.6 says, God created a good work and he'll be faithful to sustain it. So the reason that your faith doesn't stay alone, Christian in the room, is because God won't let it. Not because you're impressive or great. This is not a motivational speech to get you rah rah up and excited and go, I'm gonna go do this thing. I'm not gonna let my faith be alone. It's a reminder that God is faithful and he will sustain you and grow you and produce fruit in you and not let your faith remain alone. Amen? Let's pray.